Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called No Other Gospel. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, May the 29th, 2016. If you held a contest for most offensive passage in the Bible, the readings for this week offer not one, but two strong candidates. In 1 Kings 18, we read about how Elijah's mass murder of the 450 prophets of Baal. This text of terror raises honest questions about important matters, especially those about religious pluralism and sacred violence. I wrote about this story in an earlier essay. In this week's essay, I'm interested in the second candidate, Paul's fiery rhetoric to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 1, 1 to 12. He writes, I'm astonished that you were so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. In the book of Acts, Peter preached that there's no other name. And here in Galatians, Paul writes, there's no other gospel. The earliest believers acknowledged that Jesus was a prophet without honor and a crucified criminal. He's a rock that makes us stumble, a stone rejected by builders. To the Jews, he's a scandal. And to Greeks, he's foolishness. Paul tells the Galatians that if he wanted to earn human approval, he sure wouldn't be preaching Jesus. But exactly what was so offensive about Paul's gospel? And conversely, what was the different gospel, the no gospel at all, and the other gospel that Paul calls a perversion and confusion of his own message? What precisely did Paul anathematize? What was he defending and denying? For the church at Galatia, the answer to these questions is simple, clear, and shocking. In Galatians, Paul addresses a very specific question. Must Gentile converts follow the Jewish law? This question was also the subject of Peter's dramatic conversion in Acts 10 and 11, where he learned that God does not show favoritism, but welcomes all people equally, even a Gentile like Cornelius. This inclusive and expansive message subverted all that a conscientious Jew like Peter held dear out of a sense of his own fidelity to God. After his Cornelius conversion that repudiated all forms of exclusion, 
Peter the Jew ate with the unclean Gentiles. But then in Galatians we learn that he later regressed into gross hypocrisy. He was a backslider. Paul says that certain men came from James, that is, Jewish leaders of the Jerusalem church, teaching that Gentile converts had to obey the Jewish law. Peter succumbed to their demands, and Paul says he began to separate himself from the Gentiles. There was also a domino effect when other believers followed Peter's hypocrisy, even the beloved Barnabas. Paul used the harshest language to repudiate those who had narrowed the gospel down to a Jewish sect. His gospel was about expanding the message to include Gentiles in all the world. And so he writes, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. We didn't give in for a moment. This is why Paul said that in serving God, he didn't seek human approval. If you want human approval, you privilege your own group, your own in-group, over every other group. You limit God's love to your own tribe and claim to be the sole inheritor of the divine promise. But when you insist that God loves people who are outside of your in-group, just like they are, and the dirty Gentiles were, by definition, unclean for ritually pure Jews, then you incur human wrath, for you've betrayed the cause. You've transgressed the carefully drawn boundaries. It took a while, and even today we relapse into hypocrisy like Peter. But Paul eventually won this argument. Henceforth, no longer would the good news of God's love be limited to an exclusive few. Rather, it became an inclusive message for all the world. And so, instead of remaining a Jewish sect, Christianity became a global religion. The perverted gospel that Paul anathematizes in Galatians is one that restricts narrows or limits the love of God to an exclusive few. In his time and place, those believers who wanted to force Gentiles to live like Jews. On the other hand, the true gospel that Paul defends is one that expands the love of God in Christ to all people without exception and subverts our spiritual hierarchies. In Galatians, Paul says his gospel bursts our normal boundaries of exclusion, like race, gender, religion, and class. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Through the one man, the one particular man, Jesus, the love of God embraces all the world. As Karen Armstrong observes in her new book, St. Paul, 2015, for many people, Paul has been the apostle we love to hate, as if, by our own modern sensibilities, he's a horrible bigot. But in fact, 
we see his universal expansion of the gospel to all the world, and even the entire cosmos, over and over again in his epistles. Paul compares the first man, Adam, with the last man, Jesus, in Romans 5. Just as sin, death, and suffering came to all humanity through the one man, Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Just as in Adam's one trespass brought condemnation to us all, the one act of righteousness by Jesus Christ brings life for all people. When God chose Abraham to form one particular nation, his election of Israel did not mean his exclusion of Gentiles. In fact, quite the opposite. God said that he would bless not only Abraham's progeny, but all peoples on earth. When God repeated his covenant with Isaac, he reiterated his attentions for all the world. In you, Isaac, all nations on earth will be blessed. And when Isaac's son Jacob used a rock for a pillow and dreamed a dream at Bethel, God repeated once again verbatim, In you, Jacob, all peoples on earth will be blessed. Psalm 96 for this week addresses not just the one nation, Israel, but all the earth, all peoples, all the families of the nation, the entire creation and all that is in it, the heavens, the earth, the sea, the field, and the trees. In Luke 7 for this week, Jesus says that a Roman soldier had a more authentic faith than a ritually clean Jew. Every person is created by God. Every one of us bears his image. We all belong to one human family. We all breathe the same air and drink the same water. Every person, says God, says Paul, is God's offspring. In Ephesians, Paul makes a clever phonetic play on words to emphasize this point. He says God is the patera of every patria, that is, the father from whom every family derives its name. God isn't the God of Jews alone or the private possession of Christians. He isn't America's God. Rather, and here the translators struggle, he's what Paul calls the father of all fatherhood, the father of every family, the father of the whole human family. He's the God of Muslims, Buddhists, and atheists. Paul even expands God's fatherly favor to the unseen world of every family in heaven and on earth. For Paul, there's a universal logic to the Christian story. God created all things in heaven on earth. He seeks the worship of all things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth. He will reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And he will sum up or bring together all things in heaven and on earth. For John, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice, not just for a privileged few, but for the entire cosmos. 
And so the ultimate destiny of all creation is liberation and freedom, adoption and redemption. The scale and scope of this future hope includes not only each person in every nation, but the whole creation. In Acts 3, Peter calls it the universal restoration of all things. Anything less is the perversion of restriction and exclusion. And Paul anathematizes such limits on the love of God as a different gospel. For books this week, I review a title called The Road to Emmaus, Poems. The author is Spencer Reese, New York, Farrer, Strauss, and Giraud, 2014. This book of poetry is 127 pages. Spencer Reese, born in 1963, is an Episcopal priest and an award-winning poet, and thus the biblical title of this book and many of its poems, 1 Corinthians 13, The Prodigal Son, The Upper Room. Reese's work has appeared in The New Yorker, The American Scholar, and The New Republic, and enjoyed the support of Guggenheim, Fulbright, NEA, and other grants. His first book of poetry, called The Clerk's Tale, won the Bakeless Prize in 2003 from the Breadloaf Writers Conference at Middlebury College. Many of these poems are rooted in geographic places like Monaco, where he contrasts the glamour of the place with the loneliness of its inhabitants. Miami, where his candidacy for holy orders was confirmed. Boston, where he recalls the troubled life of his AA sponsor. New York City, where he meets his adopted brother. And Hartford, Connecticut, where he was born. Other poems are rooted in specific places, like an ICU ward, a nursing home, a prison, an orphanage, the grave of Thomas Merton, a coming-out group at a community center, and his therapist's office. Reese is especially interested in the complex dimensions of the human heart. He writes, How faceted, coveted, and intricate the heart, behind its casements, fixed in its singular setting. Who owns it? And again, from the poem Gilgamesh, question, how to construct the architecture of the heart. I resonated with his several poems about his ambiguous relationship with his parents that softened over the years. He admits that he had judged harshly their marriage and that for a decade I did not speak to my parents. The poem, The Fifth Commandment, Honor Your Father and Mother, contemplates a visit with his aging parents when they count out their pills each night and the dash between their dates is nearly closed. In The Prodigal Son, he concludes, Mother and Father, forgive me my absence. I will always be moving quietly toward you. Reflecting on his dual calling as poet and priest, Reese writes, A poet, like a priest, 
works with facts and mysteries. The facts mysterious, the mysteries, the mysteries factual. Spencer Reese, The Road to Emmaus, Poems. For movies this week, I review I Saw the Light from the year 2016. This biographical drama of the country singer, songwriter, and music legend Hiram King Hank Williams, who lived from 1923 to 1953, premiered at the 2015 Toronto Film Festival. Although in its broader release, it has garnered consistently mediocre reviews. It's a classic case of a powerful story poorly told. In a career that lasted just six years before he died at the age of 29, Hank Williams sold six million records and had 36 songs in Billboard's top ten for country and western, 11 of which were number one hits. The movie also struggles to rise above a very common story, a huge musical talent who self-destructs in a deeply personal tragedy. Alcohol and drug addictions, a stormy marriage, more women in marriages, physical exhaustion from endless travel and hard living, an overbearing parent, and everyone wanting a piece of you. The British actor Tom Hiddleston does a fine job of singing Williams' Deep South Country Blues. The title of the movie comes from one of Williams' best-known gospel songs, which lyrics are poignant, to say the least, given his sad story. Here are the lyrics to I Saw the Light. I wandered so aimless, life filled with sin, I wouldn't let my dear Savior in. Then Jesus came like a stranger in the night, praise the Lord, I saw the light. I saw the light, I saw the light, no more darkness, no more night. Now I'm so happy, no sorrow in sight. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. Just like a blind man, I wandered along, worries and fears I claimed for my own. Then like the blind man that God gave back his sight, praise the Lord, I saw the light. I was a fool to wander and stray. Straight is the gate and narrows the way. Now I have traded the wrong for the right. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. I saw the light, I saw the light. No more darkness, no more night. Now I'm so happy, no sorrow in sight. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. A biographical drama of the life of Hank Williams. The name of the movie, I Saw the Light. And finally this week, for poetry, we continue our series of Addresses to the Lord by John Berryman. John Berryman lived from 1914 to 1972. This is Address to the Lord number five. Holy and holy. The damned are said to say, we never thought we would come into this place. 
I am fairly clear, my friend, there's no such place ordained for inappropriate and evil man. Surely they fall dull and forget. We too, the more or less just, I feel, fall asleep, dreamless forever, while the worlds hurl out. Rest may be your ultimate gift. Rest or transfiguration. Come and come whenever thou wilt. My daughter and my son fend will without me when my work is done in your opinion. Strengthen my widow. Let her dream on me through tranquil hours less and down to less. Abrupt elsewhere her heart, I sharply hope. I leave her in wise hands. Address to the Lord number five by John Berryman. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, May 29th, 2016. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.